Once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in Bulgaria have done. And since we now have listeners in that country, I will just assume that one of them is Rusev. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. One quick note up front, with SummerSlam fast approaching, there clearly needs to be a special guest host when we get around to that event, so I'm happy to say that joining me for that show will be none other than New Blood Rising podcast host, William Rankin. William previously guest-hosted episode number 23 of this fine podcast, and he did a fantastic job, so I'm looking forward to having him on once again. And as a reminder, be sure to listen to the New Blood Rising podcast, as they are currently recapping every ECW pay-per-view ever. Their most recent episode covered Heatwave 2000, a.k.a. the show where Rob Van Dam busted out the Van Terminator for the very first time. Give it a listen, because it's great. And so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, August 10th, 1998, and we are live from the Civic Auditorium in Peyton Manning's favorite city. Omaha! Omaha! Peyton's right side. Omaha! 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 Yes, that's right. During one of the hottest periods in company history, Omaha, Nebraska actually got to host a live episode of Raw, so kudos to those corn huskers. Some of the other noteworthy events which occurred in this same arena include three straight episodes of Raw in April and May of 1995. They were actually all taped on the same night, but they aired in three consecutive weeks. And also In Your House 7, Good Friends, Better Enemies, in April of 1996, where Shawn Michaels and Diesel had a really good no-holds-barred match that featured Diesel ripping off Mad Dog Vachon's prosthetic leg to use as a weapon. Ouch. And speaking of Diesel, that event is also historically noteworthy because it featured the final WWF pay-per-view matches for Kevin Nash and Scott Hall before they jumped to WCW and ignited their ratings resurgence. Clearly, lots of history has taken place in Omaha. We open this episode of Raw with mankind wandering around backstage and smashing random objects with a chair. Much like Jack Nicholson, he keeps yelling about being able to handle the truth, presumably in reference to the fact that his tag team partner Kane appears to be in cahoots with his brother The Undertaker. And to further drive that point home, we're then shown footage from last week on Raw where The Undertaker abandoned his tag team partner Stone Cold Steve Austin to stare down Kane while Austin was getting beaten up by The Rock and Owen Hart. Later in the night, Kane seemingly swung a chair at The Undertaker, but Taker ducked and Kane hit Mankind instead. And then, last night on Sunday Night Heat, Mankind called out The Undertaker, but Kane showed up instead. Kane then proceeded to beat the crap out of both Mankind and Paul Bearer, but then, for the second time in the past few months, Kane removed his mask to reveal that it was actually The Undertaker under the mask. With all this insanity going on, it certainly seems like we're in for a wild episode of Raw tonight. So on that note, let's cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Only a couple noteworthy signs tonight, including McMahon's a pole smoker, and a sign with the letters NWO, abbreviated as No One Watches Old Farts, but the word watches was misspelled. I mean, really, dude, spell check your shit before you come to the arena. You owe it to the audience. And truthfully, this week's obligatory scanning of the crowd was actually much briefer than usual because Mankind immediately walked to the ring with the same chair he was carrying backstage. He grabs a microphone and says he's tired of being lied to and deceived, so he needs the help of the only man who has ever been completely honest with him, and that man would be Vince McMahon. 
Sure enough, Mr. McMahon does indeed walk down the ramp. And as a quick side note, when Vince enters the ring, we can clearly see a large blood stain on the canvas. I'm not sure what dark matches they put on before the show started, but goddamn, I feel bad for whichever poor jobber ended up being murdered there. Anyway, Vince says that it must be very humiliating for mankind to have to ask for his help, and not only that, but Vince says he detests people who need help. He isn't here to help mankind, he's here to hurt him, because the truth hurts, and that's what he's going to provide. Vince then lays out the case once again that The Undertaker and Kane are in cahoots, and he says that, as far as he is concerned, The Undertaker and Kane might as well be one and the same. But then, as soon as he makes that statement, flames explode on the stage, and that brings out Kane and Paul Bearer. Bearer says that Vince is a master manipulator, and he may be able to poison mankind's mind, but he can't poison Bearer's mind or Kane's. Bearer has been in the WWF for seven years and made a lot of money thanks to Vince, but he doesn't need him anymore. In fact, he would be ready to walk out of the company with Kane right now. Vince then responds to him and says that he isn't convinced that it's actually Kane standing in front of him. In fact, I'll just play the clip for you because it features some classic evil Mr. McMahon goodness. Listen, the truth is, the truth is, Uh-oh, he's seeing a ghost. The truth is, that's not your son. What? The truth is, that's a son of a bitch. Whoa! Good God. That's you, Undertaker. I can smell the stink of death on your breath. That's you, Undertaker. Is it? You either take that mask off, or I'll rip it off for you, right now! Vince then goes to grab Kane's mask, and amusingly, we can hear him yell, Take that goddamn mask off! Also, as a quick side note, how come everyone on the roster is intimidated by The Undertaker and Kane? Except for Vince McMahon. That doesn't really seem to make much sense. But anyway, as soon as Vince goes to grab Kane's mask, the lights go out again. In fact, the lights are actually off for about 25 seconds, and they cut to a shot of the crowd, so I'm thinking one of the participants in this segment may not have been in quite the proper position. But anyway, when the lights come back on, The Undertaker has Vince by the throat, and Kane has completely disappeared. Taker is presumably about to chokeslam Vince, but Mankind jumps him before he can do so. However, Taker fends Foley off pretty easily, and even punches Paul Bearer for good measure. He then chases Vince up the ramp and backstage as we're once again left with many questions about the potential alliance of The Undertaker and Kane. Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler then hype up tonight's episode of Raw for a bit, including a pretty crazy main event, a four corners match for the WWF Tag Team titles, Champions Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker versus Kane and Mankind versus The New Age Outlaws versus The Rock and Owen Hart. I'm definitely looking forward to this one. We then quickly cut backstage where we see The Undertaker open a door and walk into a room. We get a brief glimpse of what appears to be Kane before the door closes, so now we can add even more confusion into the mix. Although for me, the most confusing part would be, if Kane could teleport anywhere, why would he simply send himself to a locker room? You gotta think bigger than that, my friend. Maybe maybe try a bank vault next time. We then cut back to the arena where Sable heads to the ring and receives her usual massive pop. If you recall last week, Sable completely reformed the oddities from creepy outcasts into lovable goofballs, and she's here this week to act as their ring announcer. Interestingly, if you're watching on the WWE Network, when the oddities head to the ring, their theme song is shitty generic music, but on the initial broadcast in 1998, they actually entered to their insane clown posse theme song. I guess we can assume from this that the WWE doesn't have the rights to the ICP song, but that wouldn't seem to make much sense since they actually put that very same song on their CD, WWF The Music Volume 3. So if anyone can explain why they had to censor the song, I'm all ears because I'm pretty confused. Anyway, our match tonight will be Luna Vachon versus Jacqueline, and yes, for those of you scoring at home, this is Jackie's official in-ring debut in the WWF. Not only that, but as hard as it may be to believe, this is actually our first one-on-one women's match during this entire podcast timeline, and no, I'm not counting the evening gown match from Unforgiven. 
You may recall that the WWF abandoned its women's championship in late 1995 when Alundra Blaze slash Medusa jumped to WCW and threw the belt in a garbage can, so there hasn't exactly been much of a focus on a women's division in the WWF since that time. And so we finally have a women's match on Raw for the first time in several years. As you might expect, they probably didn't trust Luna and Jackie to do anything major in this match, so it only lasted about two and a half minutes. The finish came when Jackie went to the top rope, but Sable pushed her off behind the referee's back, and she landed crotch first on the top rope. When Jackie fell to the canvas, Luna then also climbed to the top rope and went for what I think was supposed to be a diving headbutt, but she actually overshot it, and her hip landed to the right of Jackie's head. Regardless, that was somehow still enough to pick up the three count in a, uh, trailblazing women's match on Raw. After the match, Sable stole Jackie's bikini contest trophy and presented it to Luna, who was then carried on the shoulders of the oddities. I must say, it's very nice that Sable was willing to so quickly overlook the fact that she and Luna were feuding with each other just a few months prior, and Luna was tearing her dress off in front of thousands of people. That's very noble of Sable. We then quickly cut backstage where a car arrives and the New Age Outlaws emerge from it. Billy Gunn angrily yells at the chauffeur to get his bags, so it appears that they aren't in the mood for any fun and games, given their recent losing streak. When we go back to the arena, it is now time for a brawl-for-all fight, Darren Drozdov versus Savio Vega. Certainly a must-see matchup. On the previous episode of this podcast, I mistakenly noted that everyone seemingly forgot about the fact that Draws and Hawk fought each other in the Brawl for All, but apparently that's not the case because they're finally following up on it five weeks later. Jim Ross informs us that Draws and Hawk were going to have a Brawl for All rematch since their first fight went to a draw, but because Hawk's nose was broken during that encounter, he wasn't cleared to compete in the Brawl for All again. Clearly that hasn't stopped him from wrestling several times since then, but apparently fighting for real is a no-no. Round one of this fight featured a few interesting decisions. Savio seemingly took draws to the mat, but the referee refused to award five points for a takedown. Later in the round, draws rocked Savio with a haymaker, and he went down to a knee, but the referee ruled that Savio had actually slipped, and him going to the ground was not a result of the punch. Insert your own blind referee joke here. Round two was dominated by Draws, as he landed several big punches on Savio, and also managed to get a takedown on him, which surprisingly drew a really big reaction from the crowd. It seems that the good people of Omaha are quite easily impressed. Round three also featured another successful takedown from Draws, and, yet again, the Omaha crowd popped for it. Draws also rocked Savio with several punches toward the end of the round, and it seemed like he was going to knock him out, but Savio managed to hang on until the end. Regardless, this was an easy victory for Darren Drozdov. But now, it's time for some sad news. Ladies and gentlemen, after four and a half years with the WWF, I'm sorry to say that this was the final Monday Night Raw appearance for Savio Vega. He debuted in January of 1994 under the gimmick of Quang, a masked 250-pound ninja, but he was repackaged as a fan favorite under the name Savio Vega, and then later he transitioned into a heel role as the leader of Los Periquas. Quite the eventful career for Savio, so I feel that it is only fitting for us to send him to Wrestler Heaven. That's right, folks. Savio Vega main evented No Way Out of Texas in place of Shawn Michaels just six months before this episode of Raw, and don't you forget it. We then cut backstage where we see Triple H and China pull up in a fancy blue BMW. Michael Cole then asks for a word with China, and, shockingly, she actually speaks. 
For those scoring at home, this marks only the second time that China has spoken in English during the duration of this podcast. She has actually flexed her Spanish skills on multiple occasions for some reason. She merely tells Cole to suck it, and then she shoves him into the beamer. I have to say, they made a very strange decision to have China speak in this backstage segment, because it actually somewhat lessens the impact of what she does later in the show, but I suppose we'll get to that in just a bit. When we segue back into the arena, it's time for LOD 2000's entrance. Hawk and Animal start walking down the aisle, but then, when their fireworks go off, Hawk gets startled, he falls to the ground, and he rolls off the side of the ramp. Obviously, Hawk has come to Raw shit-faced once again, and they're trying to play this up as though it was a tragedy, but the way Hawk slipped and fell actually just looked pretty silly. Several WWF officials, including Commissioner Slaughter and Dave Hebner, then arrive on the scene to tell Hawk that they're not going to allow him to wrestle tonight because he's in no condition to perform. While they're talking to him, LOD's would-be opponents, Southern Justice, are walking to the ring, and they start jawing with Hawk. He then proceeds to jump Dennis Knight, but eventually several more officials intervene and carry Hawk backstage as he yells, There's nothing wrong with me! We then get a quick flashback to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat. Tennessee Lee attempted to toss his boot to Jeff Jarrett during his match with Darren Drozdov, but Droz took the boot for himself, nailed Double J with it, and scored the victory. After the match, Tennessee Lee and Jarrett got in each other's faces, and Lee told Southern Justice to attack Double J, but they attacked Tennessee Lee instead. Jarrett and Southern Justice then started putting the boots to Lee, and, well, there's no easy way to say this, folks. I'm afraid that may be the last we see of one of the greatest characters in WWF history, Tennessee Lee. If you thought Hawk's drinking problem was depressing, this may have just one-upped it. Well, anyway, with Hawk gone from ringside, Southern Justice start double-teaming Animal, but then, even though he literally just competed in the Brawl for All a few minutes prior, Draws then runs out from backstage to help out Animal. Draws cleans house, and he's left alone in the ring to celebrate, but then... Jeff Jarrett sneaks up behind him. Double J is no longer wearing his goofy country singer outfit. Instead, he's rocking a tight blue t-shirt and black jeans, and you can tell he's becoming more evil because he's starting to grow a goatee. However, perhaps more importantly, he's holding a guitar which has the phrase, Don't Piss Me Off, written on it. And when Draws turns around, Jarrett clobbers him in the head with the guitar. That's right, folks, this is the beginning of Jeff Jarrett utilizing his acoustic equalizers, which he will go on to use for the next decade plus. I must say that it's rather ironic that Jarrett gives up his country singer gimmick, but then he starts bringing guitars to the ring with him? Go figure. However, Double J wasn't through with his carnage there, as he then pulled out an electric razor and shaved off a good portion of Draws's hair. Jarrett and Southern Justice then walked backstage, as Jim Ross informed us that Double J is, quote, a changed man. Translation, goodbye country singer gimmick, hello smacky guitar gimmick. Whether or not that's an improvement, I will leave that up to you. We then get a quick cut backstage where we see X-Pac arriving, so we now know that all five members of D-Generation X are in the building, but they didn't travel together as a group like they usually do. Hunter and China arrived together, the Outlaws arrived together, and X-Pac arrived by himself, presumably because no one could stand to be around him. The members of DX have been having tremendous struggles over the past month, and as a result, tonight may be the night when the faction disbands. And after a commercial break, DX does indeed come to the ring, but not together. The Outlaws are out first, followed by X-Pac, then Triple H and China. Hunter grabs the mic and, well, I'll just play it for you. This is not typical DX. Well, look at Jerry Seinfeld. He's going to disappear. Everybody wants to know where DX stands. Right. It's been a long two weeks. So what I'm here to tell you right now is... Uh Uh-oh. You know something? I've just about had it with you and your bitch. I've been thinking about this. I've come to the conclusion, you know, that you're a couple of jack-offs. Oh, my gosh. 
me get this straight. I'm a jack-off. She's a jack-off. I'm a jack-off. You think we're jack-offs? Well, let me think back for the last few weeks, and if there's one thing that I can see, it's that the biggest jack-off in the world is standing right in front of me. And as far as jack-offs go, while we're at it, you two have got to be a couple of the biggest jack-offs I've ever met in my life. Jeez, they're splitting up, no doubt about it. Ho, 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 Let me get this straight. You are calling me a jack-off? Yeah. Yeah, he called you a jack-off, but more importantly, you're calling me a jack-off? We're jack-offs? Yeah, let's get this straight. You're a jack-off. He's a jack-off. You're a jack-off. Supposedly, she's a jack-off. And I'm a jack-off. We're all in agreement. Everybody in this ring is a bunch of jack-offs, right? Now, there seems to be this discrepancy about whether we should stay together or whether we should split. Now, since we're all in agreement that we're a bunch of jack-offs, and if anybody would know about that, it would be us. Since we're all in agreement on it, I think that there's only one thing left that we can do, and that is give these people here what they all want, and that is the DX split. Now, first of all, in case you were wondering, they just said the word jack off a total of 19 times. And second, when Hunter says the world wants to see a DX split, initially we think that he's talking about the group breaking up. But then he, X-Pac, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn all turn away from the camera and motion as though they're about to take their pants off. However, before they can do so, an unlikely source stops them. Wait a minute, you guys. She's talking. She's not a mute. Listen to these people. Did it ever occur to you guys that people are sick and tired of looking at your asses every week? No, it didn't. Everybody wants to see our ass. What's your point? My point is, is that if anybody's going to initiate a DX split, it's going to be me. As you might have been able to guess from that clip, China then pulls her pants down to expose her thong to the crowd, and so it is actually she who has produced the DX split. Get it, huh? Wink, wink. Also, as you can tell from the reactions of the commentators and the crowd, this is the first ever instance of China cutting an in-ring promo. Truly a historic moment. But the moral of the story here is that DX is not actually splitting. It was all an elaborate con to fool us although presumably them losing all of those matches was not part of the ruse. After a commercial break, Michael Cole and his terrible goatee are in the locker room with your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Cole asks Austin for his thoughts on what has transpired so far tonight, so Austin puts his arm around him and walks Cole toward the shower, and at this point you might think that this is going in a bit of an awkward direction. 
Instead, however, Austin then proceeds to turn on the water and get coal soaking wet, which is something that DX has also done to coal in the past. Apparently, the WWF's top stars just can't resist bullying people in the shower, so perhaps a young JBL was taking notes. I should also mention that Austin is wearing one of his new t-shirts, which says, Bad to the Bonds, B-O-N-Z. I know it's the late 90s and the letter Z is super cool, but that's just butchering the word bones for no apparent reason. No wonder it wasn't a big seller. When we go back to the arena, it's time for our next match, Vader versus the Godfather, who is, as usual, accompanied by three of his finest hoes. However, during Godfather's entrance, we see that Bart Gunn has made his way over to the announce table, where he is berating Jim Ross because he made excuses for Dr. Death Steve Williams getting knocked out in their Brawl for All fight. JR says that Bart was the better man that night, but he needs to worry about the Godfather now, since he'll be facing him in the Brawl for All next week. Bart says that if Vader doesn't knock the Godfather out tonight, then he'll do it next week. And so that takes us to the Godfather-Vader match, but will there even be a match? I ask that question because, for the second week in a row, the Godfather makes Vader a tempting offer. He can fight him, or instead, he can take the three hoes and spend the night with them. And ladies and gentlemen, you can feel free to mark this one in your history books, because Vader officially becomes the first ever opponent who actually decides to take the hoes. Vader exits the ring with the three ladies, but then he has to go and do something stupid. He walks over to Bart Gunn, who is still seated at ringside, and tells him that he would be wise to take the hose next week instead of fighting the Godfather in the Brawl for All. As you might expect, Bart then KOs Vader with a hard left-handed punch, then he runs into the ring and takes down the Godfather. They roll around on the canvas for a few seconds, but referees quickly jump in to separate them. Godfather then heads backstage with the three hoes, so once again, Vader looks like a complete moron because he could have just gone to a hotel and presumably crushed three women to death under his massive frame, but instead he's left lying unconscious at the hands of a longtime jobber. As a quick reminder, in WCW, Vader held the world championship three times for a combined 377 days. In the WWF, he gets knocked out by Bart Gunn and refers to himself as a big fat piece of shit. Quite the legacy. We then quickly cut backstage, although in this case, cut may be the wrong word to use, where we see a limousine arrive with Val Venus and... <sighs> John Wayne Bobbitt inside. In case you aren't familiar with John Wayne Bobbitt, well, stay tuned because there will be more on him in just a moment. However, before we can get to that segment, we get a quick pre-taped message from Dustin Runnels. This evening, I'd like to speak to you about choices. This very next segment on the Warzone deals with explicit subject matter and contains numerous references to genitalia, adultery, and fornication. It is also rife with gratuitous violence, unfit for family viewing. But we have choices. We can choose to send a message to the World Wrestling Federation. We can choose to spend our time watching quality programming rather than violent, sensationalistic nonsense. Why, at this very moment, there is a special on reptiles on the Discovery Channel. Now, doesn't that sound like a better way to spend the evening? I certainly think so. So remember, parents, it is through our choices that we raise our children, preparing them for the glory of eternal life. Choose wisely, for he's coming back. Thank you, and God bless. The proceeding was sponsored by the Evangelists Against Television, Movies, and Entertainment. Yes, that's right, Evangelists Against Television, Movies, and Entertainment, or if you wanted to abbreviate it, E-A-T-M-E. I think the WWF actually showed remarkable restraint by not spelling that out for everyone, so kudos to them for allowing us to connect the dots on our own, I suppose. We then go back to the arena where, yes, it's time for Val Venus. He's being pushed to the ring in a wheelchair by John Wayne Bobbitt, and they are also accompanied by Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. If you recall last week, Taka Michinoku turned heel and attacked Val. Kayentai then beat the crap out of Val backstage and hung him naked from the ceiling, where Mr. Yamaguchi-san then raised a sword with the intent of choppy-choppying Val's pee-pee. However, Raw went off the air before we could find out if the big Valboski was forcibly removed. And that is where John Wayne Bobbitt comes in. 
For those of you who aren't familiar with old JWB, here's a quick backstory, and it may make you a tad uncomfortable. John Wayne Bobbitt became famous in 1993 because, while he was sleeping, his wife Lorena Bobbitt legitimately cut off his penis, picked it up, got in her car, started driving, and threw his severed dong out the window of the vehicle. However, she quickly developed remorse for her actions, so she called 911, the tallywhacker was found, and doctors were able to reattach it after a 10-hour operation. The case eventually went to trial, where Lorena was found not guilty due to insanity. Yikes. However, it should also be noted that Lorena accused John Wayne Bobbitt of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, and in 1994 he was convicted of battery for punching an exotic dancer, resulting in a 15-day stint in jail. Now, mind you, none of this is excusing his wife cutting his dick off, but the WWF presumably looked at those rape allegations and his conviction for battering an innocent woman, and they said, that's unfortunate, but we need to have this guy on TV anyway. I mean, we're doing a severed penis angle. We've got to have Bobbitt. And hey, if you're going to prominently feature Mike Tyson at WrestleMania four months prior, I suppose it goes without saying that rape isn't a deal-breaker for Vince McMahon. But enough of the heavy stuff. Let's get back to Raw. And obviously, we can tell right away that the WWF cares deeply about one of its employees potentially being severely wounded because the cameraman zooms right in on a sign which says, Hey Val Venus, where is your penis? Clearly, they're very sensitive to this man's situation. So Val stands up from his wheelchair while holding a bag of ice over his nether regions, and he enters the ring with Bobbitt and Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. And you know what? I'm just going to play the whole segment for you. Unlike John Wayne Bobbitt, it's a bit long, but hey, it's classic Attitude Era insanity, so I hope you enjoy it. There's the man who became world famous for having one of the most dastardly deeds done to him ever in history. I'm talking about Mr. John Wayne Bobbitt right here with us tonight. And, and Val, I was going to ask you, are you still hanging in there? But you're going to have to tell us yourself. Hello. You know, tonight, I come to you a, a humble man, half the man that I used to be. But you know, it's like they say, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. You know, there's only... There's only one way to stop the mighty boa. And that's to sever it at the head. Well, ladies, you better take a, a rain check on them new snakeskin boots. Because, because the big Balboski is alive and ready to fight, baby! <laughs> and, well, um, I guess the Balboski lives. Well, apparently. Apparently, Yamaguchi-san did not get the job done. Well, exactly. What happened last week when the lights went out? Well, you know something? Thanks to a cold butcher's block <laughs> and a little shrinkage and, of course, my good friend, John Wayne Bobbitt, who just happened to cut the lights just at the appropriate time. The big Valboski is standing at full attention. Cock rock. Oh, we had a great time. We all we live on the edge, you know. We went uh, out uh, for a couple beers and 
uh, Bell ordered a club soda with a slice, and the bartender wanted to cut us off. <laughs> Listen, I want to I know one thing real quick. Not trying to cut you short or anything, but well, oh. now come on. Oh. I understand that your ex-wife Lorena actually actually threw something out the window, and and it was lost out there for a while. But they found it, right? Yeah, they found it. Well, it's a good thing because I was thinking how funny that would picture that would look on the side of a milk carton. But it's a good thing. Now listen, Val, I know you got something else you want to say. Like I said, not cutting you short, but go ahead, Val. I most certainly do. You know, I'd like to celebrate this moment with a very, very special woman in my life. Baby, it's been a long, hard road. <laughs> But it ends right here, baby. <laughs> you know something? Oh, don't cry, baby. You see, no woman is worth the trouble that you brought me. No woman. She's getting dumped. Mrs. Yamaguchi's getting dumped. I hope you enjoyed the ride, baby, because this is where you get off. So take your shoes from under my bed and hit the bricks. <laughs> Whoa. Adios. Whoa. Adios. <laughs> okay, a few things here. Number one, you can't tell this from listening to that clip, but Val was wearing tearaway stripper pants that he was unable to fully pull off, so he spent the whole promo with his pants stuck around his right ankle. Whoopsie. Number two, Val steals a man's wife and then humiliatingly dumps her on national television for no apparent reason. What a great baby face. I certainly look forward to rooting for him. Number three, who the fuck thought it was a good idea to have John Wayne Bobbitt cut a promo? He had to deliver one line, and he completely fucked it up. Number four, was John Wayne Bobbitt backstage at Raw last week because he had heard about Yamaguchi-san's threat to Choppy Choppy Val's PP on the previous week's episode? Or did he just happen to be hanging out backstage during the exact moment when another man was about to have his Johnson cut off? If the latter is the case, that may be the greatest coincidence in world history. And number five, kudos to the fan who heckled Val with this taunt. I come to you, a, a humble man. In case you couldn't hear that, a fan yelled at Val to, quote, get a real dick. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Attitude Era. But anyway, what we've learned from this segment is that the big Valboski is still alive and well, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san ruined her marriage for nothing, and John Wayne Bobbitt is as bad at cutting promos as his wife is at cutting... Well, never mind. Let's just move on. And so we segue from intentionally bad to unintentionally bad, as it's now time for a brawl-for-all fight, Bradshaw versus Mark Merrow. You may recall that Mero actually lost his previous Brawl for All matchup against Steve Blackman when the lethal weapon easily took him to the ground about 400 times. However, Blackman has since suffered a knee injury, so he will be unable to continue in the tournament. And so, just like the Godfather one week ago, Mark Mero gets to continue fighting even though he lost his previous bout. Yay, Brawl for All! In round one, Mero actually landed several good shots to JBL's head, which makes sense because, as we've been told many times by Jim Ross, Mero is a five-time New York Golden Gloves champion. However, JBL did manage to land a takedown on Mero, so the WWF's unofficial scoring had them tied at five after the first minute. Round two was more of the same. Mero landed more punches, but JBL scored a takedown, so the fight remained tied. Whoever won round three would win the whole thing or so it seemed. In round three, Mero again landed the most punches, but referee Jack Doan seemingly screwed Mero out of the victory. With Bradshaw holding on to Mero in the corner, and Doan telling Bradshaw to let him go, JBL instead tackled Mero to the ground, but Doan awarded him five points anyway, which audibly caused Mero to yell, he didn't fucking break! At the conclusion of the round, we were once again tied, so Tony Chimmel announced that there would be a fourth round, which amusingly drew a loud chorus of boos from the fans. In round four, each man seemingly landed a similar number of punches, 
but JBL again managed to score a successful takedown on Mero. That proved to be the difference, as Bradshaw was then announced as the winner when time expired, so he will now go on to face Darren Drozdov in the next round of the Brawl for All. It was actually kind of funny seeing JBL box with Mero, because the Brawl for All is obviously not divided into weight classes, so you had a guy who was half a foot taller and 70 pounds heavier squaring off with a much smaller opponent. But then again, that's just how a bully likes it. After a commercial break, it is now time for your main event, a four corners match for the WWF Tag Team titles, champions Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker versus Kane and Mankind versus the New Age Outlaws versus The Rock and Owen Hart. However, before the match can even begin, Ken Shamrock runs into the ring and starts beating the crap out of Owen, and then he puts him into the ankle lock. Meanwhile, the other members of DX and the Nation come to the ring and start brawling with each other, so we have a huge schmoz before the match can even get underway. After another commercial break, we're told that Shamrock injured Owen's ankle, so European champion D'Lo Brown will replace him as The Rock's tag team partner. Fun fact, with D'Lo entering the fray, this match now contains every champion on the roster except for WWF light heavyweight champion Takamichinoku. Somehow he didn't get invited, can't imagine why. We also get one other very interesting tidbit, as JR tells us that a triple threat match is booked for next week, Owen Hart versus Ken Shamrock versus Dan the Beast Severn. Yes, that's right, we're actually going to get Shamrock and Severn in the same ring, although it won't be a singles match, and it'll be on a pre-taped episode of Raw. I guess the WWF has suddenly become very opposed to money. But anyway, back to the Four Corners match. For the record, this is one fall to a finish, only two wrestlers can be at the ring in the same time, and it is not an elimination match, so the champions do not have to be pinned in order for the titles to change hands. We're also informed of a new rule which has gone into effect for this match, the outlaw rule, meaning that one member of a team cannot pin his own partner to win the match, as Billy Gunn wisely did to Road Dog on Raw two months prior. A few minutes into the match, we get one of those douchebag moments when a fan attempted to run into the ring, but referee Earl Hebner and some security guards managed to corral him before he was able to enter. Strangely, he was holding up his sign the entire time when he was being held back, so he must have really been proud of it. I couldn't see what it said, but I'm sure it was on par with the brilliance of last week's sign that said Val Venus does snuff films. Truly a classic. I won't go into the full detail of this match, but it actually went for about 15 minutes, which is an eternity by current Raw standards, and it was really goddamn enjoyable. The crowd was totally into it, frequently chanting Austin and Rocky sucks, and they gave The Undertaker a massive pop when he got tagged into the match. And speaking of The Undertaker, he played prominently into the finish. Eventually the match degenerated, no pun intended, into a giant schmoz while Taker and Mankind were in the ring. Kane touched Mankind's back to tag himself in, and he then hit The Undertaker with a single choke slam. Kane pinned Taker, and Hebner counted the one, the two, and the three. Your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions, the team of Kane and Mankind. However, as soon as the three count was registered, The Undertaker immediately did his Jason Voorhees sit-up routine, which caused Austin to look at him suspiciously. Jerry Lawler then played it up as though Taker intentionally laid down for his brother so that Kane and Mankind could win the belts. Austin and Taker stare each other down for a bit, but then Austin just walks up the ramp as we go off the air. Ah, but wait, if you watch this episode on the WWE Network, we actually get some bonus footage from after the show ended called Extra Attitude. When we rejoin the festivities, Austin is now back at ringside with his personalized Smoking Skull version of the WWF title. He heads back into the ring and stares down The Undertaker once again. Taker does the classic belt-around-my-waist motion, and then he leaves the ring. Austin's music plays, and that's it. Not sure why they felt the need to include that extra footage since basically nothing happened, but hey, I guess that's what you pay $9.99 a month for. And now, let's finish this baby up by taking it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast as Ben Duggan. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. 
the ratings recap. Before I dive into the ratings, I must note that WCW put on a pay-per-view the night before. That pay-per-view was Road Wild 1998, and, in case you want to know if it was worth watching, I will just mention that a match between The Public Enemy and Alex Wright and Disco Inferno went more than 15 minutes. Need I say more? Of course, the much-hyped main event for the show was Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff facing the team of Diamond Dallas Page and Jay Leno. Now, as you might expect, Leno was not given a lot to do in this match. However, there was one infamous spot which he pulled off, and I'll just play it for you right here. Down on the arm once again goes DDP, driving Hogan down, straddling now. Break an arm that way. Wait a second, tag again! Now Hogan's down, and Jay Leno, full arm drag and twist! Another one! Drives Hogan to the back! Oh, you gotta love it. Leno's got Hollywood on his knees. And look at this, look at the leverage, pushing on the elbow! (laughs) I love it. Obviously, the training with DDP paid off. Yes, that's right, Jay Leno put Hulk Hogan into an armbar and took him to the mat. The oft-told story behind this spot is that Bischoff wanted Leno to hold the armbar for a while so the press photographers at ringside would get ample opportunity to take pictures of Leno and Hogan together in the ring. That's right, Bischoff apparently thought it would be good for business if the world saw a celebrity getting the better of arguably the most famous wrestler of all time during a wrestling match. How did this company end up going out of business again, I wonder? Anyway, the match ended when Leno's band leader Kevin Eubanks snuck into the ring and hit Bischoff with a diamond cutter, followed by Leno pinning Bischoff for the victory. That's right, we got a Kevin Eubanks run-in during a main event match. I'm not sure why DDP or Leno couldn't have just hit that diamond cutter instead, but there you have it. And so, in the record books, Jay Leno holds a main event pay-per-view victory over Hulk Hogan. Suck on that, Andre. As you might expect, Road Wild was universally panned by critics as being absolutely terrible, but the pay-per-view buy rate numbers were actually not bad. The show did 365,000 buys, which makes this WCW's most purchased August pay-per-view of all time by roughly 125,000 buys. It certainly seems as though Jay Leno was able to bring in some of his audience because I doubt that most fans were buying the show to see Steve Mongo McMichael versus Brian Adams. So now, let's get into the TV ratings. Last week, Raw spanked Nitro by putting up a 4.85 rating to WCW's 4.2. So was there enough interest from Road Wild to put WCW back in the win column? Shockingly, the answer was yes. Nitro defeated Raw on this night by putting up a 4.7 rating to the WWF's 4.55. Apparently, John Wayne Bobbitt does not equal ratings. This is Nitro's first win in the Monday Night Wars since five weeks prior when they did the massive Georgia Dome show where Goldberg defeated Hulk Hogan for the WCW title. And here is what you could have been watching on this episode of Nitro instead. Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeated The Barbarian. 1991, is that you? Eddie Guerrero defeated Tokyo Magnum. Canyon defeated Perry Saturn. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Sick Boy. Chris Jericho defeated Stevie Ray to win the WCW Television Championship. Rey Mysterio defeated Psychosis and Lismark Jr. Lex Luger defeated Bret Hart via submission to win the WCW United States Championship. And yes, that's right, they booked Bret Hart, a guy who never submits, to tap out to Lex Luger. Juventud Guerrera defeated Kidman to retain his WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Horace defeated Raven. Conan defeated Kurt Hennig via disqualification. Sting and Kevin Nash defeated The Giant and Scott Hall, also via disqualification. And in your main event, WCW World Heavyweight Champion Goldberg defeated Ming. And yes, for those of you scoring at home, despite the fact that he main evented the previous night, Diamond Dallas Page was not even on this episode of Nitro. Odd decision. But hey, to their credit, they put on 12 matches, and some of them were actually quite good, so kudos to WCW for defeating an angle-heavy episode of Raw with a wrestling-heavy episode of Nitro. And let me just say that WCW is certainly going to keep up their ratings momentum, because next week's episode of Nitro features the WCW debut of a former WWF champion, and, well, let's just say that it's going to be interesting, to say the least. 
Stay tuned for that. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. So when I say Raw was light on wrestling this week, that was not an understatement. With the combination of several promos, two Brawl for All fights, and two non-matches, the LOD Drunk Fest and Vader taking the hose, there was actually no wrestling between the Luna Jackie match and the main event Four Corners match. That means we went 56 straight minutes of TV time without a wrestling match, which, if you account for commercials during the initial live broadcast, was probably closer to an hour and 15 minutes with no actual wrestling. Welcome to the Vince Russo era, indeed. And so, with that being said, I would give this episode of Raw a pretty solid thumbs down. The main event was fantastic, and the DX split segment with 185 uses of the word jack-off for no apparent reason was entertaining, but everything else was mediocre to bad, unless you're somehow a big fan of the Brawl for All. For the first time in quite a while, it actually appears as though a three-hour Nitro may have put on a better show than a two-hour Raw, although I wouldn't necessarily get used to that sort of occurrence. I would also say that of all the episodes of Raw which have been covered during the podcast timeline, this is the one which leaned most heavily on sexuality, which will obviously become quite the recurring theme during Vince Russo's tenure. This episode alone featured an angle completely centered around Val Venus's dick, Vader taking the Godfather's scantily clad hose, and China showing her ass to the audience. It's becoming clear that the WWF is certainly going in a new direction, and it's only going to get even crazier from here, for better or for worse. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, to tie it all together, I will leave you now with a clip of Goldberg challenging Stone Cold Steve Austin to a match on a 1999 episode of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Everything. I want to ask you something. Now, this Steve Austin guy... Who's that? I keep hearing that Goldberg's a wimp, and Goldberg's scared of him, and, I, you know, I know you're your friend. I, I, I don't want to bring this up. I guess this gives me an opportunity to uh, throw a challenge out there. You going to throw a challenge right here tonight? Yeah, you know, there have been... There have been... Uh, I've been in high school before. You go. (laughs) There you go. Um, Ever since I started, everybody always called me a ripoff of Steve Austin. Well, you guys know, and I know, there's only one Goldberg. That's right. And I don't know what he's thinking, or if he's, or if he's even thinking. But uh, (laughs) I'll throw a hundred grand of my money, Austin, anytime, any place. We can even do it in the back. Alley of the NBC. Right studio. here at NBC. We'll, we'll set it up right here at the Tonight Show. One minute, Graham. In fact, you know, in fact, you know something? How about Callista becomes the ring girl? I think it's a hell of a deal. So you, it's a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand. You got to do the a hundred grand.